this passage on today. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13 and reading through verse 35, here is what the word of the Lord says. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he Open to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Wonderful story, isn't it? Wonderful story. Uh, from this passage today on this Resurrection Sunday, this is what I like to talk about, the resurrection of hope. The resurrection of hope. Uh, hope, my brothers and sisters, is a fascinating thing. It's fascinating. When it's present, all things are possible. Uh, but when it is lost, life itself seems pointless. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, if you lose hope, somehow you lose the vitality that keeps you moving. You lose that courage to be 
that quality that helps you go in spite of it all. We must accept finite disappointment, King says, but never lose infinite hope. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope, is what he says. I'm waiting on him to catch up with me because I want y'all to see this. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me do that again because I want y'all to get this right. He says, if you lose hope, this is Dr. King, somehow you lose the vitality that keeps you moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go in spite of it all. We must, he says, accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Hopelessness, what is hope, hopelessness? Hopelessness refers to a state of mind caused by circumstances that seem too much to cope with. Circumstances that seem too much to cope with. A loss of hope that is so complete that it results in a more or less permanent state of despair. This is a picture of hopelessness. Uh, have you ever, have, have you ever, any of you, have you ever been in a situation uh, where you had extremely high hopes about something for good reason? You felt like you had good reason to have these high hopes. Then something drastic, even something maybe catastrophic happens. And as a result, your high hopes are dashed. Your dreams seem to fade away. Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever been? I have. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe, maybe, maybe it was a marriage that failed and you were hanging all of your hopes and dreams on it. Maybe it was a child who you thought was going to be all that you dreamed they, they would be and they went astray. Maybe it was the heaviness of depression, the heaviness of anxiety, or maybe it was the heaviness of the loss of a loved one. It caused you to be in this hopeless place. Whatever the case uh, may have been, it felt as though to you at the moment that all hope had faded away. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I've been in some of those places. I don't know if anybody can relate. Anybody here can, can be a witness for me today. In fact, I'm going to need you to be a witness for me all throughout the time we are together today, so you might as well get used to it. Anybody that's ever been in that place can, can relate to what hopelessness feels like. Uh, those that followed Jesus in his day, they had high hopes as Freeman. They had hung all of their hopes on him. It had taken them some time a uh, little while to become convinced about who he was. It had taken them a little while to get totally on board with his message. But many of them had completely by then sold out and committed themselves to his cause after some time. Which brings us then to our text for today. In our text to, that I've read to you today from Luke's Gospel, uh, the setting is the very first Easter Sunday morning before it was known as Easter Sunday morning. Very first one. Uh, Jesus had been crucified on Calvary just a couple of days prior. 
on Friday. We know it today is Good Friday. He was then buried in a borrowed tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. He had spent all night, y'all help me, all night Friday, all day Saturday in this borrowed tomb in early Sunday morning. Early Sunday morning something happened, but before that, as he laid there, uh, he was buried there along with apparently all the hopes and dreams that they were counting on. Not only was Jesus buried, but for the disciples who had committed themselves to him, all of their hopes and dreams also laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb along with Jesus. Several women, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and some other ladies had gotten up bright early on Sunday morning to go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices and ointments. They thought they had gotten up pretty early. In fact, the text says that it was early dawn. They thought they had gotten up early enough. But when they arrived, they realized that Jesus had gotten up earlier than they did because the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. Jesus had already, he had beaten them to the punch. He had already gotten up. So so what they do is they make haste to go and tell Peter and the other apostles what had happened. When they get there and tell the story, they didn't believe him. Although Peter decides to go himself, you know Peter, Peter is aggressive. He decides to go and investigate investigate the situation for himself. So he goes and checks for himself and he finds that indeed the tomb was empty. But there was still unbelief among the apostles. And two of them head home for what would be a sad walk to Emmaus. This is the first part of our text. It helps us to see uh, and unwrap and discover this sad journey to Emmaus. These two weary travelers that we meet in verses 13 through 18, it is one man who is named, another who goes unnamed. The man that's named is named Cleopas, and we meet Cleopas and his traveling partner. Traveling partner doesn't have a name, but they're on their way to Emmaus. They had been followers of Christ. They were familiar with what uh, the scriptures had to say about the Messiah, and Jesus to them seemed to fit everything that the Scripture said the Messiah would be. It seemed to be all who Jesus was to them. They had witnessed his miracles. They had witnessed Jesus walk on water. They had witnessed him turn water to wine. They had witnessed him raise the dead, heal the sick, heal the woman with the issue of blood. They had witnessed him feed 5,000 hungry souls on the side of a mountain when there was no food or water for them. He had, they had witnessed all of this. They had witnessed the blind man be dropped down through the rooftop and or the lame man be dropped down through the rooftop and receive uh, the ability to walk again. They had witnessed uh, all of these things. They had witnessed blind Bartimaeus who sat by the side of the roadside begging and heard that the Savior of the Lord was coming through and cries out, Jesus, thy son of David, have mercy. They had witnessed all of this. So they thought that surely this has to be Messiah. 
They had visions in their hearts and in their minds of revolution. They had visions of victory. They had visions of triumph over the oppressive and suppressive Roman authorities. But their hopes had been dashed when the Jewish religious leaders suddenly succeeded in, they thought, crucifying Jesus. According to verse 17, they were going home sad, dejected, and disappointed. They were still in shock. They didn't understand why God had let them down. Anybody ever been in a place like that where you thought, you thought God had turned his back on you and let you down? Uh, So they head out on the seven-mile journey by foot to a town called Emmaus. In verses 15 and 16, uh, we find out that as they are dragging along, having what amounted to a pity party, having what amounted to a woe-is-me session, having what amounted to why and how could God do this to us session, they're walking slowly, dragging along in this pity party, and Jesus catches up with them. But when he catches up with them, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. So Jesus, recognizing when he catches up with them in verse 17, uh, their despair, because verse 17 says they were sad. He recognizes their despair and dejection, and he sets them up. You know Lord will set you up. He'll set you up. He'll he'll ask you some things that that he already knows the answer to. And it's all a setup just to check where you are because he already knows the answer. So he he sets them up with the first of two questions that he's going to ask them, only two questions he'll ask them in this passage, and both of them are set up because he already knows the answer to both of them. First question he already knows the answer to, and I'm going to paraphrase what I think the question may have sounded like. It's not what the text says, but here's what, he, here's what my version of it is. Well, what are you discussing that seems to have you both so sad? What is it that you're talking about? Because you look sad. You look despair in despair. You look dejected. You look uh, 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 discouraged. What, what are you talking about that would have you in? He already, he's taking them somewhere. He's leading them somewhere. He wants to hear them. He wants to hear them uh, talk about what they're talking about to him because he wants to check them. And so he says, "What are you talking about that has you so sad?" In verse 18, Cleopas is surprised that the stranger hasn't heard about the things that have been going on in Jerusalem. Perhaps he is uh, only a recent visitor to the city and is just passing through, or. I'll paraphrase again my version of what Cleopas might have said. Have you been living under a rock somewhere? How is it? <laughs> How is it uh, that you don't know uh, that, that what's happening, what, what has happened? How, how is it that you, you, you have to ask us why we're sad? How, do you not know what's going on? Uh, He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So Jesus' response is to ask the second question that he already knows the answer to. He already knew the answer to the first one because it's about him. He already knows the answer to the second one because it's about him. So here's what Jesus says. What things? (laughs) 
Isn't there some? What things? In the second part of our text, what things? He says, what things? Uh, no, enlighten me. I don't know. What things are you talking about? So in verse 19, they respond by, first of all, giving Jesus the highest honor that can be bestowed on somebody next to the honor of being Messiah. Because they've kind of abandoned that idea by now. So they give him the next lowest honor, and they say that uh, Jesus was a mighty prophet. They describe him as, look at verse 19, it says this, that Jesus was uh, a mighty prophet. 24, 19 says, uh, and he said to them, what things Jesus does. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. So before, the, before all of this, he's Messiah to them. Now they bestow an honor on him, but it's not quite to the level of Messiah. They say, we're talking about Jesus who is or was a mighty prophet. So it's an honor. It's an honor. He's describing him that way. This puts Jesus, in fact, on par with prophets of old, such as Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah. Uh, so at this point in their minds, this was the highest honor that they could bestow. Because, I mean, after all, according to verse 20, he had been crucified by the chief priests and rulers and is now dead. Right? So it's, it's disturbing to them. And then we get to verse 21. Verse 21 is very interesting to me because in verse 21, here is what it says, but we had hoped. But we had hoped. It seems to suggest that hope is gone now, <laughs> that hopes have been dashed, that dreams have been lost because it is in past tense. And they say, but we had hoped. It's the Greek word, elpizo, and it, it means to look forward to something with the implication of confidence about something coming to pass. Hope. Hope for. It's a continued action in the past. We're hoping it is past tense. So it says that they had hoped, which means that they were in a state of hopelessness. And here's what they say that's interesting to me also in 21. After they, they express to this stranger that they don't know is Jesus, that they had hoped something. What did they hope? They had hoped that in 21, he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They saw Jesus as, in their minds, they saw him as the conquering redeemer, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, lions are, are, are violent beasts. The lions are the king of the jungle. They saw him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as their conquering redeemer. But they had conveniently overlooked, Nate, the fact that Old Testament antiquity had not only described him as lion. Somebody ought to help me right there. It also described him as another L word, the lamb that comes to take away the sin of the world, the sacrificial Passover lamb. They had forgotten that not only was he conquering redeemer, he was also the suffering servant. 
So because they say we had hoped, it sounds like they had forgotten all of these things that they had learned about Jesus from their study in the scriptures. They had forgotten all about that. Their humanity had taken over. Uh, but we had hoped that he was the one. Let me just pause right here and interject something uh, and remind you of something. No matter how things appear, uh, Calvin, no matter how things appear, no matter how they look, no matter what the world says, remember this, he is still the one. <laughs> I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it sounds like. I don't care about any of that. Always stand on that. He is not that he was the one, but he is still the one. So in verses 22 through 24, they were confused, bewildered, and despondent. Because, after all, some had reported that the tomb was empty. But they, 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 they couldn't be sure if that meant that Jesus had actually arisen or that maybe somebody had stolen his body. All they knew at this point is that they felt hopeless. So in an effort to restore their hope and remind them that he is indeed still the one. Jesus convenes a Bible study. He convenes. It's, it's, it's important to go to Bible study because, uh, you know, you find out some stuff when you study the Bible. You ought to, you ought to, you ought to tell your neighbor it's in the Word. It's important to be in the Word because when you get in the Word, you'll find out some things that will bring your hope back. And so Jesus decides, as he still is incognito, that he will convene a Bible study on the spot. 20, 25, 25 says, says this. It says, um, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They still don't know it's Jesus. And beginning with, watch this, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning somebody else. <laughs> things concerning this Martha himself. He started teaching about himself. So he convenes a Bible study. Uh, what a Bible study this must have been. He taught completely from memory. Taught by the greatest teacher, explaining the greatest things from the greatest book, teaching all about himself. One can only wonder which pericopes of Old Testament texts he chose to teach from. Uh, Warren Wisby suggests that perhaps he started in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the, the first gospel, the first prophecy of the Redeemer, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then maybe from there he spent a little time in Genesis 22 talking about how Abraham placed his only beloved son Isaac on the altar. And in that uh, famous Chapter, chapter 22, verses 10 through 13, we're reminded of what happened when it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand 
and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. Can you imagine how Jesus is working this thing? This is Jesus teaching them, right? Your only son from me. And Abraham lift, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket or in his, in his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Can you imagine how Jesus used that to lead them? in their thought processes and help them to recover their hope. And then I can imagine from Genesis 22, he may have stopped over in Exodus chapter 12 and talked a little bit about the Passover. And you know the Passover when the death angel came and the Lord had already told the children of Israel to kill, take a lamb and sacrifice it, a spotless lamb, and take the blood from the lamb and put it over the doorpost and over the lentils of the house. That way when the death angel comes by, He'll pass over. And verse 13 of Exodus 12 says, the blood shall be a sign for you. I almost feel Baptist right now. Ooh, I got to slow myself down. Y'all going to make me, y'all going to make me, it's Easter. <laughs> Nate, is Easter. <laughs> I got to hold my hope. <laughs> it's Easter. <laughs> All right, let's, let's talk about it. The blood, anytime I say the blood, it just does something to me. I'm sorry. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike, strike the land of Egypt. Maybe from Exodus, he makes his way to the law books, the book of Leviticus, and to teach them about the Levitical sacrifices. Can you just see Jesus working this Bible study? Makes his way to Leviticus, Leviticus and talks about the tabernacle ceremonies, the meat offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, the peace offerings, the day of atonement, and the scapegoat. He's still not telling them he's Jesus. He is the scapegoat. <laughs> he probably then works his way through the prophetic messages in Psalms and winds up in one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, one of my favorite in all of the Bible, Isaiah 53. He's, I can just imagine that he, he maybe lands the plane in Isaiah 53. You know it's important how you land the plane, right? And I, I, I believe he does it. I believe he lands the plane in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. If I can just use my mind. I don't know what Jesus taught, but I know he taught it all from memory. And I know that he walked them through all of this. And I just want to believe he landed it in one of my favorite passages. And it says this, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was hid, hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and was esteemed, uh, we, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded. There's that feeling again. I'm sorry, y'all. For our transgression, he was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by or with his stripes. I can just imagine Jesus landing that thing right there. Cleopas, don't you understand what the scriptures said? He was wounded. He was bruised. After this reminder, by way of, walk, of a walk through the scriptures, the end of this passage is about breaking bread and burning hearts. 
breaking bread and burning hearts. This is in verses 28 through 35. In 28 and 29, they strongly urged him as he's preparing to go on his way. They strongly urged him to stay with them. It says, get late, you ought to be tired. We still don't, they still don't know it's Jesus. You ought, to, you, ought to, you ought to stay with us. And so he agrees. He, he already sees this coming because he's Jesus. He already knows, so he agrees to stay with them. And in verse 30, Jesus goes from invited guests to host. Because in verse 30, he takes the bread himself. The host is supposed to do this. But Jesus assumes the role of host, and he takes the bread. He blessed the bread or gave thanks for it and broke it and gave it to them. Then 31, in the intimacy of table fellowship, as Jesus breaks the bread and offers the blessing, they suddenly become aware of who he really is. And then he vanishes. (laughs) He disappears. After all of this, He disappears. And in 32 through 35, in their excitement, they begin to reflect back on. Now they know it's Jesus, right? So they begin to reflect back on that amazing Bible study that Jesus had shared with them on the road and told each other as they thought about it. They thought about it. They recognized that their hearts were set on fire. Did not our heart burn as he talked to us along the way? Now they know it's Jesus. And because they know it's Jesus, they are overwhelmed. And the overwhelming excitement continues. Uh, and, they le- and it leads them to go and tell the others that they've seen and supped with Jesus. They've seen and supped with him. And Jesus is, in fact, alive. The empty tomb uh, that, that Jesus has risen goes and shares it with them. Uh, the empty tomb, I want to talk a little bit about that before I sit down and take my seat. The empty tomb contained a message that was vitally ne- necessary for that age, for this age, and for every age that is to come until he comes back. Not only did it rep- represent the resurrection of Jesus, it represents the resurrection of hope for many who have been or will be hopeless. Think about the empty, empty tomb and the hope comes back. I'd like to share three reasons before I sit down why the empty tomb represented hope to them and represents hope to us now. Number one, the empty tomb uh, was an explanation of his death. It was an explanation of his death. Uh, As we said before, Jesus' death was a tragedy to his followers. They were devastated and their hopes seemed to be dashed, but upon the discovery of the empty tomb, it all began to make sense. They could now begin to see that Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary and it had been in God's plan from the very beginning. His death was the supreme demonstration of the determination of God to redeem people from the tyranny and the waste of sin. was a demonstration of that. So it is that the empty tomb is an explanation of his death. It's also a demonstration of his deity. Uh, because there was then and there is still now some question about Jesus' deity. Was he really who he said he was? I did a, ser- a series one time. Uh, who is this Jesus? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Let me just pause right here and tell you, he Lord. And we have proof that confirms it. The empty tomb confirms uh, his deity. 
In Paul's epistle to the Romans, he reveals that it was the resurrection that authenticated as divine truth all that Jesus had claimed and promised. It was Paul who writes in Romans 1.14, it says this, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's confirmed by the empty tomb. The disciples had witnessed the shameful treatment of Christ by, his, by, by, by sinful humans. Their hearts had been broken by his agonizing death on the cross. They were bewildered and depressed, fearful and fainting. They fled into hiding for fear of, their, of losing their lives. It was the empty tomb that changed the situation. His divinity was no longer a matter of faith alone. For them, it was now fact. Empty tomb does that. It caused Peter, you know Peter, caused him to go from coward to courageous. You know, it was the same Peter who denies Christ three times in fear of his life. But when the empty tomb becomes a reality, he all of a sudden gets courage. And it's the same Peter who denies Christ three times who preaches the inaugural message of the New Testament church before those who were in opposition to him with authority, with passion, with conviction. It's the same Peter. It's because of the empty tomb. And lastly, let me share with you that it was a declaration of his companionship. It really, this one is almost the best one for me uh, because it reminds me that he walks with me, that he talks with me. That he reminds me that I'm his own and the joy we share while we linger there no one else has ever known. It is a reminder of his companionship. One of the reasons Jesus, Jesus rose was to assure his disciples that he had not forsaken them and that he would continue to be with them every step of the way. thing that fueled their faith along the way was the abiding presence of the living Lord who had defeated sin, death, and the grave. That's what helped them. His presence controlled the, them in moments of moral weakness. His presence challenged them in times when tremendous efforts and courage were needed. His presence also comforted them in times of trouble. There's something that sets Christianity apart from all of the world religions. Well, there's a lot of things. That set Christianity apart. One of the main things that sets Christianity apart from other world religions is this opportunity we have for koinonia, intimate fellowship with our God. Because he is right there with us. And the empty tomb confirms it. The empty tomb uh, is a declaration of his companionship. The empty tomb uh, is a demonstration of his deity. The empty tomb is an explanation of his death. It sets us apart from any other religion there is in the world. Let me share with you. There are five things that attempted to hold Jesus in the tomb. Five powers that attempted to hold him. The cold hand of death tried to hold him. The linen grave clothes that were wrapped tightly around him tried to hold him. There was a huge stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. It tried to hold him. And that stone was sealed with the official seal of the Roman authorities. It tried to hold him. And last but not least, there were guards, Roman guards, Roman soldiers stationed outside of the tomb that tried to keep him in there. 
he overcame them all. Nothing could hold him. The old preacher used to say he got up. Help me now. <laughs> With all power in his hand. Nothing could hold him. Can I leave you with a quote? Y'all know I like leaving you with a quote. I'm going I'm to quote Cornell West today. Is that all right? Cornell West says this. I'm going to read all of it, but I'm going to focus on the last couple of sentences. But let's just read it all. And then I promise you we're going to have communion and we're going to be out of here ready for Easter, Easter dinner. Here's what Cornel West says. It's, it's, it's interesting what he says. He says, the significance of the resurrection claim within true Christian, uh, within true Christian descriptions of the, let me start again. The significance of the resurrection claim within true Christian descriptions of the self, world, and God is that despite how tragic and hopeless pres- present situations and circumstances appear to be, there is a God who sits high and looks low. A God who came into this filthy, fallen world in the form of a common peasant in order to commence a new epoch. An epoch in which Easter focuses our attention on the decisive victory of Jesus Christ and hence the possibility of our victory over over our creaturehood, the old creation and this world. And here's why I want to focus. So to be a Christian is to have a joyful attitude toward the resurrection claim to stake one's life on it, and to rest one's hope upon its promise, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Can I just read that last part one more time? So to be a Christian is to have a hopeful attitude toward the resurrection claim, to stake one's life on it, and to rest one's hope upon its promise, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. When Jesus got up, our hope was resurrected. When Jesus got up, we are able now to get up. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth a living just because he lives. And then that leads us, Jesus, Jesus had what, what was similar to uh, Last Supper with those two people who were walking. Because he, break, he sits down and he breaks bread with them, doesn't he? He blesses the bread. He gives thanks for it. He breaks it and he shares it with them. Uh, it is kind of a picture of what happens in the Last Supper. Last Supper is significant and important because in the Last Supper, we are reminded of the significance and the importance of remembering what Jesus did always. This day, really every day, but certainly on this day, as we reflect on uh, the resurrection, we should be reminded of all that Jesus did for us. We should be reminded of how he gave his life. We should be reminded of how he did not remain dead, but that he got up with all power in his hands. He ascended where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and for me. We should reflect on that, think about that as often as we can, because it is what Jesus commands us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. So then we today will uh, partake of communion as we reflect on what Jesus did.